Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the new weekly podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox with another look at the week's events and what they tell us about how government works and sometimes how it doesn't. This week, Boris Johnson managed to take his Brexit plans further than Theresa May ever managed, but not far enough to meet his October 31st do-or-die deadline. It left us, government, parliament, the civil service, preparing the ground for a Brexit deal which is paused, a no deal which is not ruled out, and a general election which could land at any moment. To make sense of it all, I'm joined in the studio by some of my IFG colleagues. Joe Owen is director of our Brexit programme. Hi, Joe. Hello. This week, you tweeted that MPs were given more days to scrutinise the Wild Animals in Circuses Act than government proposed for the EU withdrawal bill. What kind of response did that get? <laughs> Quite a lot, actually. The most interesting discussion, I think, was discussing how many animals the Wild Animals in Circuses Act covered. And it was how many? Uh, well, I think it was 21 at the start of the legislation and 19 by the time it passed because two of them had died. So parliamentary scrutiny is not good for everyone. Dr Catherine Haddon is our historian and constitutional agony aunt. Hi, Kath. Hi. You were out in the cold with the BBC on College Green on the night of the vote on the withdrawal agreement bill. What's it like to think with people constantly shouting and waving banners behind you? It can be quite an interesting atmosphere. I mean, in a way, it's good to see people out there caring about the issues. At the moment, what's most interesting is they seem to have moved into winter mode. They have lots of lights going on, so it's quite festive. Great. That is far from over. And also with us is Maddie Timont-Jack, a senior researcher on the Brexit team. Hi, Maddie. Hello. You were tweeting a lot, an awful lot, from Mallorca, where I think you were during the historic Saturday sitting. Uh, were you actually in the pool? I was next to it. I thought I'd be able to turn off my Twitter feed, but apparently I can't. But I think my holidays might be in peril for, for a while uh-huh. longer. You'll have to stack them up for the end if there is an end of all this. On this week's podcast, we're also talking to Graham Brady, chairman of the Conservative Party's influential backbench committee and a leading Brexiteer voice. And from probation to prisons, bin collections to benefit assessments, the UK has been a pioneer in the outsourcing of public services to private companies. But after a series of headline-making failures, is it time for a rethink? We'll be talking to our colleague Tom Sass about a subject which, in normal times, should be at the front of our minds. So do subscribe, and if you get a moment, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let's begin with the now-paused Brexit bill and why Boris Johnson doesn't want to proceed with taking it through Parliament, at least for now. Maddie, is there a way he can actually get this bill passed? Well, the votes on Tuesday night, uh, MPs did actually support second reading of the bill. He got a majority of 30 MPs, which I think was higher than many people expected. And and what weight should we put on that? Does that really mean all those MPs support his bill? No, it definitely doesn't. I mean, what what it does mean is that MPs are willing to look at the bill, potentially try and amend the bill, and then they can make a decision when we get to third reading. And Theresa May would have absolutely killed for this. (laughs) Like the opportunity for MPs even just saying yes but we have reservations. I mean, the question. So, so the yes, but is, is political gold dust, at least as far as Brexit has doled that out. Yeah, exactly. And you can already see uh, Johnson talking about how MPs have already approved his deal and is forgetting about some of the buts. But the big question is whether he's prepared to kind of push on and suffer mm. potential defeats on amendments. So let's, let's talk about these amendments because they are the big but, aren't they? Yeah, they are the big but. I mean, 
there's an absolute, I can't remember how many pages, Maddie, you've been. There are 47 pages of amendments so far, and I think we're going to. You have read them all. I have read them all. But they will, I think there'll be more, more to come. And actually, I mean, the longer that the bill sits there, the more amendments can come down because it's had second reading. So MPs can keep tabling amendments up until we progress to the next stage. And a lot of their amendments are kind of, there's in two gaps, basically, aren't there? Some of them, are, you say, are trying to genuinely improve what's in there because people are concerned about the role of Parliament. Mm. Some of them are about just trying to annoy the government. So all um, kinds of, but there's some things in there that could be real trouble, aren't there, Kath? Yeah, and I mean, that's what the government are concerned about is things that might be wrecking amendments that basically mean that, you know, the bill can't proceed or that change fundamentally the deal that they've negotiated with the EU. Because remember, this is about putting into legislation something that's already been agreed with the EU, who they won't want to reopen again. So if it becomes... And that's what the so government... So what will count as a wrecking amendment? So it's, I mean, it'd be something that voids the agreement uh, this is trying to legislate for. So if, you know, there's lots of talk about a customs union amendment, we've no idea if it's got the numbers, but if you were to have a customs union amendment that said this deal that has just been negotiated needs to have a customs union. The government needs to go back and and renegotiate this with the European Union to put in a customs. That is very arguably a wrecking amendment. But it's worth saying Ken Clark has already tabled a customs union amendment, which doesn't do that. It just says that would have to be an objective for the future negotiations. So there's, there's this quite interesting question. I think there's also amendments relating to level playing field as well for, in yeah. a similar and way. What, what, what does that mean? So, I mean, Joe will explain better than I will. Well, the level playing field is about competition and it's to do with environmental competition, state aid, all of these laws that ensure that when countries are trading one another, there's a level playing field of the kind of basic rights. And so Labour are very keen on this because it includes things like workers' rights and environmental rights, where they're saying we are worried that this government will then kind of lower standards. So they want to try and put this into UK law to say we cannot go lower than the standards that we have now. But the government hasn't been very keen on it, has it? Saying, look, this is part of the point of leaving the European Union, that we can change these things. And Kath, where where does the Speaker fit into this? I mean, we're coming up to the the last week of John Burke's tenure as Speaker, and it's it's been, uh, as we all know, pretty controversial. Mm. Does he have much room in this, for example, about by adjudicating what is a wrecking amendment and what isn't? Yeah, he does that. I mean, his main role in all of this is to choose amendments. And that is quite important when you start talking about things like the two different amendments that people have put down in terms of the transition in the future. Which one does he think has most cross-party support? Which one does he think is the one that should be chosen? Because normally if there's two that are very similar, he will only choose one of them. And of course, Boris Johnson lost a key vote this week uh, that was about uh, the, the programme or how quickly MPs were going to do this. Yeah. Uh, what counts as enough time to scrutinise something? It's difficult to say. It's normally, you know, you would expect something like this to be going on for several weeks. That doesn't mean that they're debating for all of those weeks, but it does mean that during the course of it, you know, they've got time to absorb all that's sort of written in the documents. I'll just say, that, you know, the comparator to Theresa May's government, okay, in November last year when she first got her deal, she pressed the EU for an extraordinary European Council. She said, we cannot wait for the December Council because three months is not enough for me to ratify my deal through the UK Parliament. Boris Johnson gave the Commons three days Mm. this week. So in part that reflects a kind of different approach between the two of them. But 
it shows why MPs were so concerned about just how tight the timeline for this bill was. Yeah, and I think to add to that, I mean, the, the reason why a lot of um, MPs were concerned about it is it's not just about giving MPs time to read the bill, although the bill's really long. And, and you know, they, it was only published Monday night and they were meant to be pressing on with it on Tuesday. But it's also about allowing select committees to have uh, evidence sessions, uh, bringing in experts who can, who've also scrutinised it, who might have different expertise to MPs and peers who can flag where areas of concern might be or also civil society groups and there'll be groups who are very concerned about how that body will function and will want to be having input into amendments to that bill. We've had a lot of examples in this of, of, of the consequences of not thinking through legislation uh, enough. I'm not going to bring the Fixed Term Parliaments Act back <laughs> into this. We have one week without diving into that in any, any, any detail. Every, day, every, every, every week forever. Um, but there are a lot of uh, powers, aren't there, that the government has taken on itself in this, this bill yeah. for, for um, doing stuff by secondary legislation yeah, exactly. and so on. And that's one area that that they do need to spend time thinking about because it's not just about, uh, you know, reading into that secondary legislation. It's, it's thinking through the consequences of it and, yes, yeah, thinking through these sort of unintended consequences where you've got to sort of play the scenario out of when this secondary legislation is being brought in, what will that mean? And that sometimes needs a little bit of thinking, you know, space. So you can't just sort of rush it through And this is way. a point I think a lot of people think longer for the bill to pass just means longer of BBC Parliament and MP shouting each other in the chamber but actually a lot of what will happen is behind the scenes and as Maddie was saying an expert committee is saying you drawing on lawyers to understand exactly what it means this isn't just about endless debates of MPs disagreeing and it's a it's a you know it's a comprehensive move that everyone involved takes in this oftentimes you see stuff going into the House of Lords and then the government is actually working with them realizing that the kind of amendments being put down will actually improve it and you know the government want to get Brexit done but they should also want to get you know the right Brexit done and to get it sort of legally watertight make sure that it's doing everything they thought it was going to do. Well, at this point, we don't have Brexit done. And the government was talking, Boris Johnson stood up and was talking about no deal. Mm. Is no deal still possible, Joe? And, and what's that doing to the civil service? We've now got to go and prepare for that as well. I mean, yes, in principle, because the EU could say no to an extension. That looks very unlikely. They've said that they won't. They just haven't necessarily made a decision yet, or they may have made it by the time this goes out. Is no deal possible in the longer term after an extension? Yes, it depends on what happens in the election. And then it's still possible after that. So we go, we go through the whole transition period and we still don't have a, and you can an, still an, an agreement no on... Yeah. Exactly. So, so what is the civil service doing? Well, so interestingly, this week, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson both said they were going to ramp up preparations for No Deal, which They've seems... They've already ramped it up. How, how high is the ramp? How high is the ramp? The ramp is getting dizzily high. Ramping it up now basically means moving civil servants off their day-to-day in other departments and putting them into these operational centres that will be sitting in different departments ready to work kind of 24-7 if we end up with No Deal. I mean, there is an interesting question at given where we know we know uh, about the possible extension whether it's very sensible to be moving civil servants off yeah, do you work. you ramp down immediately afterwards? Well, exactly. So you're going to be dragging them off different policy areas and say, come and sit here for a, a no deal that we probably know is not going to happen. But, but it is still theoretically possible. But and, it's still, you have you to know, prepare for it. Yeah, it, all it takes and, 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 is and, and, the EU not agreeing. It would be reckless not yeah. to, I yeah. guess. But they also have to prepare for a general election, which mm. is, is hovering there. Kath, the opposition is now finally, after weeks, months of protesting that mm. they haven't had access to the civil service, they've now 
now been given these access talks. What does that actually mean? These are talks that happen in the run-up to a general election. And, you know, in usual times, you know roughly when that's going to be because it's the end of a five-year period or something like that. And it allows the opposition to go in and talk to senior civil servants and say, these are our plans for government. These are changes we've made to departments. These are the big policy areas. You need to be warned about all of these. And because we have overnight changes of government, they're hugely important to the civil service. Other than that, they can only really tell from manifestos and speeches and so forth what uh, oppositions so might be planning to do. Go at this. Does the civil service have to do a lot of work for that? Yeah, but mostly they do that work in the election campaign anyway, because remember there's restrictions on government activity during a general election campaign, so they're not doing as much work. So they'll be mostly focused on that. I doubt if anyone, apart from these access talks in the civil service, is really thinking about a general election in any depth, because they just... You know, they can't at the moment. They haven't got the Doing capacity. Doing no deal planning. Yeah. <laughs> do you think civil servants take the election manifestos more seriously than the parties do? Historically, yes, they do. <laughs> we have interviewed many people who have said to us that when, you know, new ministers went into government and uh, they saw that the plans, because the civil service do these first day briefings, which typically civil service are hundreds of pages long and the minister never reads them. But they do these long briefings. And we have in the past had ones where ministers come in and they say, um, when we said we were doing that, what we actually meant is. Um, <laughs> so, no, they're really important, but they're also really important for getting behind what the manifesto pledge is about because once you get going with a you know new policy area, suddenly all these implementation issues come up. You know, how are you going to put it into practice? And that's the civil service's job is to sort of challenge that, talk through the practicalities of, of making policy happen. And that means that you might make, need to make adjustments. So it's really useful to find out what were the politicians trying to achieve with this policy. Boris Johnson's been getting up uh, often in the House of Commons and saying he wants a general election. Can he actually get one? He's got three ways that he can try and get one. One is that he brings another motion which the rest of the House of Commons all signs up to and says we will have a general election, but he needs two-thirds of all MPs to be able to vote for okay, that. What, what's, the, what's the act for? Which, uh, no, we're not The other option is that he can do a very short bill which says we're going to set aside this legislation that allows him to get an election. Which Maddie is called the... Uh, Fixed term parliaments out. And if that passes, then you can go swiftly to a general election. That only needs a simple majority, but you can amend it. So that could turn quite chaotic. So for could him. you put votes for 16 on that? It is possible you could try and put votes for 16 Could you do something around a referendum olds. on that? They could attempt to put in caveats like that. But yeah, so that's his problem. That's the risk in doing that yeah. option. Mm-hmm. The third option is that somebody, could be the government, could be the opposition, brings a vote of no confidence. And that then leads to this sort of period, we've talked about this before, this 14-day period where you might get a new government being formed or you might not, and then you lead into a general election after that. And this is where all this controversy about whether or not Boris Johnson would actually leave, whether he would accept an alternative government, what that alternative government would be, all that. I think that's all quite premature now for this period. I think the big question is, will Labour sign up to a general election if the extension is in place? And this is the key, is actually Mm. will the EU say, we'll grant you an extension, but only if there's an election and then Parliament have to vote and for this it is a really after, important point, before the, the extension EU, is in the place. Because the EU doesn't want to be in politics, but it, yeah. what yes. length of extension it gives so the, really affects this. Exactly. So for the EU, I mean, what they say is the simplest option for them is just to grant the extension that was asked by Parliament the 31st of this January. It was part the of ben the Ben Act, Act yeah. that yeah. went as the letter that Boris Johnson didn't sign, but his government did send. If you're the EU, deviating from that is a political choice. 
So and and they're not, they, they don't want to be seen to interfere exactly. in the politics so of another country. So it's much more straightforward for them to just go for that date. I mean, there's talk that certain parts, uh, certain member states, some of which are close France. and sometimes, yeah, adversarial with us, are keen for a shorter one to try and drive it through. Try and drive but the deal through by saying you've got two weeks. So, yeah. uh, so that's uh, spell it out, President Macron yeah, yeah, of exactly. France, saying perhaps only a few weeks that the UK really has to get on with it. And then back on, you know, the parliamentary stuff, hmm. it doesn't, everyone's talking about whether Labour backs it, but Labour don't have to back it, do they? Because you could do what Boris Johnson did when he failed to get an election in September and said, if any other party brings a vote of no confidence, yeah. we will hear it out and we will give you time Yeah, for and it. it only needs to be a motion termed under the, I'm going to now have to say it, thank you, Joe, Fixed Term Parliaments Act, <laughs> Bingo. Uh, which says this House has no confidence in Her Majesty's Government. That's all it needs to be is a motion that says that and that triggers the act, yeah. What about the timing on this? Can we actually get an election this year if the government wanted, if, you can, if others wanted? Yeah. You can still. It would have to be in early December. We've heard that the cabinet secretary has told the prime minister you can't have it after the 12th of December because school halls will be too busy doing Christmas plays. Uh, and, and I've done my maths and I think that means that Parliament, if you were going under the sort of 2000 majority early election motion, the Parliament would need to be dissolved on the 7th of November. Because the maths is you need how many days? 25 working days for the campaigning period. So if you went that route, so then you'd be looking at essentially the latest you could have an, uh, pass an early election motion as the week beginning the 4th of November. Yeah. And if you're looking into next year, they're not going to want to have it too close to Christmas because otherwise you're campaigning through the Christmas period. So you're looking at later in, in January, which means that we... Isn't it? Yeah, which is after the longer extension that the yeah. EU might give. Yeah, and the last thing, it's not a vote winner to cancel Christmas plays. <laughs> <laughs> this week we speak to Graham Brady, an MP who's a leading Brexiteer. He's also the chairman of the 1922 committee, the influential backbench body of Conservative MPs and he really knows what makes the party tick. Right now he's at the heart of discussions over what Boris Johnson does next week. He spoke to Kath Haddon. Graham Brady, thank you for joining us. Just to start off for our listeners, can you explain what the 1922 committee is and what your role is? Certainly, as chairman of the 1922 committee since 2010, my role obviously is to chair the meetings of the committee, but more significantly, I suppose, to try to make sure there is a good liaison between the party leadership, uh, the front bench and backbench colleagues, try to make sure there's a good flow of views and information. So we're really part of the plumbing of the Conservative Party. And the best analogy, I suppose, would be to say the 1922 committee, albeit with its um, interesting historic name, uh, is really the Parliamentary Conservative Party. Uh, uh, But we just think it sounds a bit more interesting. And addressing the 1922 committee is something that Prime Ministers do regularly. It's an important way they stay connected to all backbenchers. How is that relationship at the moment? How does Boris Johnson's relationship with backbenchers, his addresses to 1922, compare to Theresa May's? Well, obviously, they have a very different style as politicians, uh, different style as speakers. Um, uh, I think it would be fair to say that Boris Johnson is a little bit more informal and perhaps a little bit jokier sometimes, um, and uh, mostly that works. So I, I think the, uh, the relationship is good. We're obviously in a very odd time where things can change 
in a matter of minutes. So it's very difficult to keep that uh, flow of information to make sure that colleagues feel as though they're really up to date with what's going on. And you know, we had a, an example last week where uh, we'd arranged that we would have a special meeting on the Monday evening for the Prime Minister and then it looked like the negotiations going on weren't quite at the point that he'd uh, thought they might be so we thought it might make more sense to have Steve Barclay, the Dexu Secretary, instead. And he came and, and filled on the Monday. We then had the Prime Minister on the Wednesday and, and that was all great uh, except that the negotiations still hadn't really reached the critical point. And uh, so... You know, he came along, uh, lots of appreciative banging of desks and, uh, and cheering. Couldn't really tell us very much, and he left. So I think just getting to that point where we really know what the situation is and it's possible to keep colleagues properly informed is difficult. We're just trying our best at the moment. And obviously... Boris Johnson got, you know, a victory of sorts the other night, uh, certainly got further than Theresa May has done in terms of bringing his deal through. One of the notable things has been the European Research Group coming on board with the deal. Do you think the deal moved to them or did they move to the deal? I, I think there are two things. And, you know, I'm acutely aware right back in January when I proposed an amendment to Theresa May's withdrawal agreement which would have the effect of removing the Irish backstop. And we passed that in the House of Commons by a majority of 16 votes then. And nearly all members of the ERG were prepared to vote for that amendment. So I think it was clear all along that doing something with the backstop uh, would unlock a lot of support uh, for a withdrawal agreement, even though it's not only the backstop that was a concern, it was by far the most important single concern. That's the first thing. But I, I also think it's an inevitable conclusion um, that Theresa May had lost the trust of quite a lot of colleagues uh, for whom it had become more of a concern about what might happen in the future negotiation of the future relationship between the UK and the EU than about what was actually in the terms of our exit. And I think that group of colleagues is more comfortable uh, with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister, believing that he is more determined to make sure that we have a future relationship based on free trade and close cooperation. The government's timetable for pushing the deal through didn't pass, and so now the deal is on, on pause. Do you think if that motion had passed, this deal could have been got through by the October the 31st, given that it would have had to have got through the Lords as well? I, I think that it would have been possible to reach the uh, 31st of October deadline uh, if we got the programme motion through. Obviously, it's a tight, tight squeeze, uh, but I, I think you, you always have to look out for a, a, a little bit of synthetic anger from politicians. And you know, when people said this was ridiculous to do it in three days in the House of Commons, you have to bear in mind that 95% of this agreement is the same agreement that we debated at length earlier in the year. So the changes to the backstop being central to it, uh, three days of debating that doesn't seem quite so, uh, so ridiculous. So I think we could have done it. I think it would not have been unreasonable. What is often not appreciated, and, and even uh, I think a number of colleagues in the House of Commons didn't realise the procedural implication of voting down that programme motion, is that the bill cannot pr proceed. 
um, because uh, you need to have, under procedural changes brought in by Labour government some years ago, you need to have a programme motion at the time that second reading has happened in order to take it forward into committee in remaining stages. There are other possible devices, a business of the House motion I think could be used, but that would be amendable and therefore you might end up with people messing about to try to make it a, a three-year committee stage rather than a three-day committee stage. So it's been made dramatically more difficult. Obviously, uh, earlier um, in the year, there were 21 Conservative MPs who lost the whip. Is there a route back for them? Y yes. Um, I, I think, you know, first of all, uh, I would say uh, I think the Prime Minister was within his rights to take the whip away in those circumstances. And you know, there is, a, again, I think often not necessarily appreciated an important distinction. I would always say... Um, for a member who votes on a policy difference and for whom it is not a, you know, a, a habitual uh, rebellion, it would be wrong to take the whip away in those circumstances. Um, the whip was taken away in that instance, uh, not for a policy difference, but for supporting the opposition in removing from the government the ability to govern. It was this business of seizing control of the order paper in a a way which was of doubtful uh, constitutional validity in itself and was a, a, a pretty profound innovation of the current speaker to allow that to happen. Uh, is there a route back? Yes, I think there's a, a route back for members who demonstrate that they really would like to be part of the Parliamentary Conservative Party in receipt of the whip. And a part of that, of course, will be demonstrating that generally they're happy to be collegiate, supportive uh, colleagues and to work with the rest of the parliamentary party uh, in, in important votes. Um, there is another mechanism as well, uh, which is something which has never been used but was agreed some 13 years ago, which is a, a route by which there can be appeals not for the restoration of the whip, but appeals for restoration to the Conservative candidates list. And so that is another process uh, that could be used in the run-up to a, a, a general election likely to come before too long. Final question then, is the Conservative Party ready for a general election? I, I think the Conservative Party is in pretty good shape. Organisationally we're in good shape. Uh, there's uh, obviously funds to be raised, but I, I, I think we can take enormous comfort looking across the House at the Labour Party, which I think is in much worse shape. Uh, and I think putting itself in the position uh, where it appears to be determined to frustrate the popular vote from the referendum whilst claiming that it's going to implement it uh, really isn't a very good look for a party that claims to be a democratic party. day-to-day -day drama of politics seldom gets as compelling as it is right now. But the future of governments is often determined by what we're not talking about, the big things that really deserve more attention than they're getting. And borrowing the phrase from Parliament, you could call them urgent questions. So, Joe, I'm, what happened this week that was of real significance? What, what's the urgent question you feel that we ought to be addressing? 
So we saw the Northern Ireland Assembly back for the first time in just over a thousand days. The collapse of power sharing there has had a significant impact on the way Northern Ireland and devolved government has operated. There has been no ministers, no one to take decisions on devolved matters. It is left up to civil servants who are operating in very constrained circumstances. So they're having to go on the, the old blueprint, if you like, the last ministerial decisions that were made. Precisely. The, the last standing blueprint is what they can operate under uh, and it is very difficult for them to deviate. This, you know, the, the recall was about actually some quite big deviations that were imposed by Westminster as part of a process for legislating for the executive, the Northern Ireland power sharing, to be restored that came earlier this year. And there were some uh, quite uncomfortable amendments there for the DUP. Maddie, what, what were those? Yeah, so so these were amendments that went through as, as the bill passed through Westminster, which said that if uh, power sharing wasn't restored by the 21st of October, then you would be decriminalising abortion and allowing same-sex marriage. And that put a lot of pressure on, on the DUP to try and restore power sharing in Northern Ireland. Right, and it was deliberately intended to give the incentive to the Assembly to reform? I think it's difficult to say that. I mean, it was a group of MPs in Westminster. These are issues mm. that are very close to their heart. So that, that was part of the reason that they wanted to do this because that was it was an issue actually back in 2017 around the Queen's speech. Abortion, for example, was a big issue for, for certain MPs then. So it wasn't quite as straightforward as that. But from the government's perspective, yes, it did put pressure on those, um, in particular on the DUP in Northern Ireland, to uh, reform power sharing because they are so opposed to, the, to those positions. Now let's take a look at this week's big idea. Outsourcing. It's become the way for many government departments and local authorities to meet their goals. To many in government, letting the private sector do the legwork is a simple matter of efficiency. They might be able to do it cheaper. They might have skills that the public sector doesn't. But others believe we should think again about having private, for-profit companies handle our public services. Tom Sass is a senior researcher with us on our Whitehall policy team, and he's been thinking about when it's right to outsource public services and when it absolutely isn't. Tom, you've written a long report on this, several in fact, and you've got another one to come. What is your main conclusion on this? Over the last 40 years, there's been this huge transformation in how government delivers public services, and we've seen a really wide range of things, everything from collecting bins and cooking in school meals to running prisons, delivering uh, operations in the NHS, outsourced. And over that period, some of those things have worked quite well. Governments achieved some fairly substantial efficiency savings, particularly in areas like waste collection and cleaning. It's been been done more cheaply now. The taxpayer has, has gained something from this. That's right. And in particular, government has been able to make the public sector more efficient in some of those areas. So in response to outsourcing, waste collection that's actually done in-house has become more efficient. So in, in, in one way, outsourcing has achieved one of its big aims uh, that was set out when Thatcher sort of first started this ball rolling back in, in the 80s. And as you said, I mean, it started in the 80s. This has been a long journey, hasn't it? So it came about really that, that, that first Thatcher government in 1979. A compulsive competitive uh, tendering was introduced, which really forced local government to start opening up some of the services they delivered to competition. So it started with things like rubbish collection. Exactly. It started with relatively simple support services. You then saw actually it started to become much more complex. So Major started outsourcing prisons. The first private prison uh, opened in 1992. And then New Labour actually really expanded this area much more, firstly by introducing PFI, the private finance initiative, which led to private companies 
constructing and building a so lot. There was a of, lot of construction there at that point. It wasn't just for services; it was for building things like hundreds schools of and schools, hospitals, and... hospitals, major construction projects. Uh, the other thing that New Labour did was extend it in frontline services as well. So places like welfare and health, you saw. Uh, private companies taking on a much larger role. What about the failures that we've had? We've had some high-profile failures of companies, but Mm. we've also had some things in in your research where you found that it just didn't work. What what, what are those? So the biggest one is probation. Probation was outsourced in 2015. That was against the advice of almost everyone, including the IFG at the time. We put out a report in 2012 saying this was a really, really bad idea for a few reasons. Firstly, that it's really difficult to measure whether a probation provider is is providing a good service. Actually, probation is linked to police, health, crime, a range of different services, and it was really hard to isolate. So this is, uh, this is a core point, isn't it? That if you can't measure a service, it's incredibly hard to write a contract to a private company saying, um, go do this for, for us, exactly. because you can't tell, you can't specify whether they're doing it well or badly. And, and the problem is you end up with really perverse incentives. So in the case of probation, they said to these private providers, go away and reduce reoffending. But actually, reoffending rates depended on a huge number of things, a, a really wide range of factors that weren't in the control of these companies. And what you saw was once they weren't able to reduce reoffending rates, which was largely out of their control, they started trying to sort of focus on the areas of the contract where they just had to protect their income. So sort of making sure that they ticked the box on sentencing plans or whatever it was to ensure that they just made as much money as they could. All right. Um, so, so if that's a clear failure, what's, what's a success? So I think the, the biggest successes have been uh, firstly, the, the sort of simple support services that I mentioned, so waste collection, cleaning, you saw 20% savings when those things were first outsourced in, in the 80s and 90s, and a real improvement in public sector efficiency. A second interesting one in the justice area is prisons. Uh, so prisons, as I said, sort of outsourced from the 90s up until now, we have 20% of our prison population in private prisons. Now, Private companies have really driven up standards across the prison sector. They were the first to sort of introduce some innovations in how technology is used in prisons. They built much more modern, much newer prisons uh, and actually have contributed to the public sector, prison sector, improving its own performance. Because this isn't the the image at the moment with a lot of prison violence going up that we deal with that in another report called Performance Tracker. Joe, you've had some experience of all this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a quite interesting question. One of the reasons you try and outsource things sometimes is just to make a service someone else's problem <laughs> you just say right well if I'll give it to these people they can take care of it and it's kind of out of my hair but there's a big risk with some of the more political things that ultimately the buck always stops with the minister mm. so you can outsource trains for example but it's still Chris Grayling who got a massive headache when there's problems with the train lines politically just you're always going to be on the hook right yeah, as, a, as a minister, as a minister it's always going to come back to you. The government can't outsource the political risk of these services, I don't no, that's think. That's really important. You came to us from the private sector. Uh, Kath, no comment. You, you, okay, <laughs> this is something that the civil service know about. They've been, you know, there have been some very high profile failures and, and certainly over the last 10 years as they've been thinking about, you know, greater number of efficiency savings and so forth and have been trying to, to look to more of these options. Civil service have also been thinking about like improving how they do this, particularly around contracting skills, bringing in specialists, commercial specialists, and so forth. Have they had like success with all of that? Have they managed to change how they operate and actually do these contracts better? Mm. So I think that's been one of the big shifts where the civil service has actually got better. Um, so if you go back 15, 20 years, there really wasn't huge amount of sort of business expertise and skill in the civil service. And there were um, some quite bad contracts. Absolutely. One of the things they've been trying to do more recently is bring more people in from the private sector with that kind of expertise and get some of them negotiating 
big contracts. I think if you talk to a, a big outsourcer about their experience 10 years ago, they would say that the official in the room was much less experienced than the private sector person, and that gave them the upper hand in those negotiations. And in fact, now they say, don't they, some of them at least, that, that it's gone the other way, that, they, that the government's driving down their margins much too far, the government's got much too good at this stuff. Government certainly got a lot more savvy in, in pushing down margins, and if you look at the story for the big outsourcers since 2010, all of them have suffered pretty pretty sort of sharply declining margins. If you look at 2016, the biggest three companies in terms of government work didn't make a profit. So some have called this a kind of winner's curse market, where actually sort of winning more work doesn't lead to you making larger profits, uh, because the government's got sort of better at curbing those profits, perhaps too good, as you say. The thing that everyone remotely interested in the subject will remember is Carillion going bust with all over the six o'clock news and all kinds of small companies queuing up to say, uh, now we're not getting paid and so on. So is that the failure of a company? Or is that the failure of the whole idea? So I think it's it's mostly the former. So Carillion made a series of pretty bad decisions about how it expanded its business. It took on risky contracts both in the UK, so in some of the sort of PFI contracts it took on, but particularly in the Middle East, um, some of the construction projects, which really sort of led to its downfall. And, and actually, the government would say that it's done a pretty good job of clearing up the mess of, of, of Carillion. It managed to um, keep all of those services running and, and sort of transitioning without too much disruption. Of course, I think Carillion does reflect a, a wider sort of vulnerability in the outsourcing market. So I mentioned earlier that profits have been falling. Uh, and actually, you've seen a lot of companies hitting problems by taking on risky contracts, which they haven't been able to manage or, or deliver effectively. Tom, what about the ferry contract for Brexit? Wasn't there a confusion about, you're saying civil servants have improved writing contracts, but wasn't there a pizza company involved with the ferry ferry contracts? There there, there was some copy and pasted uh, (laughs) terms and conditions that were unfortunately from a pizza company, made a very good story. I think the the thing there was due diligence clearly wasn't done. Again, uh, was rushed through also on Grayling's watch, we have to we have to point out. Um, that sounds like a very fancy term for really not reading the text that the government was writing. I mean, isn't it a bit, a bit more of a basic error than that? So I, I think it was certainly a huge mistake from the department. They were probably under a lot of pressure to negotiate that contract very, very quickly as part of their no-deal preparations. Um, so that was you know, a big mess, some failure on the civil service. But I would say, again, the minister was responsible for trying to drive something through very quickly on a rush timescale. The, the similar t- similarity to probation is, is quite clear. Do you think that Parliament has the right expertise or knowledge to also be able to scrutinise what the government is actually doing in those areas? So maybe they also need more support and understanding of how those contracts work to be able to properly understand whether the government is doing it right. And more data. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Maddie. So one of the things we called for in our report is for select committees to get involved in contracts earlier. So look at the plans before the contract actually goes live and assess whether they're unrealistic. If they're based on unrealistic assumptions, they shouldn't be allowed to continue. Um, In order to be able to do that, select committees clearly need access to data, as Bronwyn says. They also, I think, and we argued this, they need the ability to recall people to come and give evidence before select committees if they've been involved in contracts which have gone wrong. Too often we see big contracts go through, probation was an example of this, and then the minister and senior official involved move on to their next job and don't come back and explain why that happened. What would you say to Labour? Because Labour has said, we really don't like this stuff. We don't like the whole idea of using the private sector to deliver public work and we're thinking of changing an awful lot of this. And this is a battle of ideas, isn't it? Absolutely. So I would say... You know, Labour's absolutely right to identify 
problems and failures in the way that government has done outsourcing over the last 20 to 30 years. They're on very firm ground there. Where they've come out and said there's not a shred of evidence that outsourcing has worked and we should instead move to a presumption in favour of in-house delivery, they've said that in local government, they're not quite sure what they're going to say yet for, for central government, I think that creates a risk that you throw away the, the successes, you throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, so what we would argue is that actually the decision on who delivers a, a service, public or private, should be made on the basis of what works, on the evidence of what works. And actually, there are some areas where having a market, having some private expertise can deliver real benefits to the public and the taxpayer. And, and I think we've probably reached the high watermark of sort of privatisation and, and outsourcing. I don't think there's anything major that government is thinking about outsourcing for the first time now. In fact, it's bringing probation where they've, the outsourcing has failed back in-house. It's thinking about what to do with the railways. Clearly, Labour's promised renationalisation. The government has the Williams Review, which is, which is looking at options. On the NHS, they're also talking about unpicking the Lansley reforms to, to sort of uh, slow down some of the competition there. And your next report is on? Insourcing. Tom, that's brilliant. We'll look forward to that report. It's nearly the end of the podcast. Before we go, one final question to the panel. This week has been eventful enough, but what do we need to look out for next week? Kath? Well, I'm going to preempt everyone else by saying the big thing that could happen next week might be nothing. Because if we don't have an election called and the withdrawal agreement bill does not come back and it's all because everyone is stopping the government from doing either of those two options, they could just bring no business to the House of Commons and we sit there until the 31st of October is passed and then we start looking at having a general election. That was an absolutely astounding thought. Joe, you agree? So I was going to say the big thing to look out for next week is October 31st, which could be Halloween. Well, it is Halloween. But it might also be something else. <laughs> and it might be? Probably an extension, I think. I mean, it's it's hard to see how without the programme motion he's going to get the legislation through, so no Brexit, I don't think. Maddie? Um, well, I am going to be looking out to see whether the withdrawal agreement bill comes back, although I think Kath could be right. We've, we've heard from the leader already that they currently have no plans to bring it back, but if Labour and the Conservative government can end up agreeing some way forward, I don't think it's going to be before the 31st of October, but maybe, just maybe, we'll get the bill back next 47 week. 47 pages of amendments, not enough. Could be more. I don't know. I'm, I'm excited. And we could be looking out for what the extension is going to be from the European Union as well. That's it this week from me, Bronwyn Maddox, and Inside Briefing with the Institute for Government. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all platforms. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and feel free to share the podcast and do leave us a review. To find out more about the subjects we've talked about today and the IFG's work in general, do visit our website and follow all of us on Twitter. We're all there. Do get in touch with any feedback or questions that you have. I hope you've enjoyed listening. See you next week when we return for the next episode of Inside Briefing.